Welcome to the Mission Gathering Thornton Message Cast. It really wasn't my first, technically it wasn't my first job, but it was my first real job. And uh, I was thinking about because, like, I, I don't know if they still do it, but McDonald's had this campaign a few years ago about being, a, being America's first real job or something. And McDonald's was my first real job. So I, uh, I followed my older sister who worked at McDonald's, and I worked at McDonald's on 40th and Wadsworth, if you, if you all know where that is. And they have like the, um, like the oldies theme in there, at least they used to. And this was, you know, back in like 1998. And I remember my uniform just being this god-awful like pink polo shirt. So you can imagine this bright pink polo shirt because it was the 90s after all. So this bright pink polo shirt with like, you know, black pants. And like, I just remember like I had this black hat that the brim was off, which always drove me crazy because I tried to like get the perfect like baseball cap and it would always be tilted. So anyway, that was, that was, my, that was my first job at, at this McDonald's. And, and after working in high school, I went to college in Springfield, Missouri, and I went to work for a McDonald's out there. And uh, I never really quite, <laughs> quite enjoyed my job at McDonald's. Uh, and now that being said, at the, at the end of the day, I, I closed a lot, especially on the weekend. So like Friday nights, I was the most popular kid on, on the whole dorm room floor because, like, I would bring home, like, all the extra food, leftover food. So, like, apple pies, like, leftover burgers. I mean, you know, college boys, they don't care, like, how old this food's been sitting out. They're like, hey, free, free pies. Um, sadly enough, I heard this one story um, <laughs> that before I started working there, these Bible college students, no less, would, like, bring home, like, whole, whole, they'd, like, cook up a whole bunch of meat at closing time and, like, bring home buns and give it to the college kids. So super great ethics by Bible college students, mind you. Um, and I still love apple pies to this day, even though I'd eat like, you know, four, four-hour-old apple pies. Um, but I didn't, you know, you can imagine like working late into the night, constantly smelling just like grease and dealing with snobby college students. It got old after a while. And, uh, I was also thinking back about some of the past McDonald's like ad campaigns. So perhaps some of these ring a bell for you. Um, when I was working in college, there was the We Love to See You Smile campaign. Anyone remember that? Yeah. And then, so here we go. That was right after the, did somebody say McDonald's? Did somebody say McDonald's? Something like that. And that was right before the I'm Loving It campaign. So getting some deep diving into McDonald's here, and I eat too much, so that's uh, neither here nor there. Uh, but the most annoying thing about the We Love to See You Smile campaign was that McDonald's had on the menu board, we lo- uh, what was it? Smiles are free. Smiles are free. And I did not like that, to be honest, because all these, these annoying college kids would come in trying to be annoying, and they'd come, hey, can I have my free smile today? And I just want to smack their face. I remember like one Friday night, one Friday night, like close to closing time, we closed at like 11 and then it'd be like a three hour close because this big McDonald's is just a mess. Do we have to spend like three hours closing and these, you know, I'm trying to clean up the front and these college kids come in, they're like, can I have my free smile? I just gritted my teeth and gave them the best smile I could. Um, You know, and Thinking back, it was never a cute college girl that came in asking for a free smile. I mean, that would have been a different story. And I don't think Karina ever came in asking for a free smile. (laughs) I don't know what it is about work, 
but work can be one of the most fulfilling or the most demoralizing parts of our lives. And while that assessment, I think, sure, it might be a little bit extreme, you know, when we consider the fact that we spend like a third of our waking hours at work, I mean, it seems fair enough to expect our, the, our place of work to be something that at least, at least enhances our lives to some extent. Um, or at least if it's not a place that enhances our lives, at least, you know, it's a, it's a place that pays us enough to do something we like to do on, on the rest of our lives, right? You know, like, our job, may, our job may be terrible, like, but it pays us enough to, like, support our family, pay for our hobbies, or invest in things we're, we're passionate about. Um, but when we feel like we're just a face in a cogless, or a cog in a, faceless cog in a machine, that's what I'm trying to say, it can be quite demoralizing, um, and quite, you know, just a bummer, to be honest. You know, without getting too deep into it, I think, I think like since the days of the Industrial Revolution, our, our capitalistic economy has sort of treated people as just these mindless, you know, parts of the machine, um, you know, less valued members of society and just, you know, disposable, replaceable pieces. But, you know, that's for another time. The point is, in a society... In a system that seems to endlessly degrade and dismiss us as irrelevant and insignificant, how can we feel like we matter? How do we feel like we're important? How can we feel like what we do matters? So I want us to think about that this morning. And I want to tell us a story about this woman uh, named Minnie Vautrin. So Minnie was, Minnie was born in 1886. She was the daughter of an immigrant and her mom died when she was young, so she's been a lot of time in and out of foster care. And of course, coming from a family of limited means, uh, she didn't have a lot uh, around her. So she had to work her way through college, often stopping at times to, to earn some more money to keep going, to keep going uh, in college. So she graduated actually as, as the uh, salutatorian of her class. And her pastor actually suggested that she consider working as a missionary overseas, going, going to teach somewhere. So at the age of 26, she traveled to China, uh, and there she saw that you know, poverty was prevalent and, and most all women were irrelevant. So she was determined to devote her life to helping the poor and promoting women's education. So a few years later, she began teaching at this college called, uh, I'll try to say it right, Ginling, something like that, Ginling College. And it, it was a women's college starting in, uh, started in Nanking, or I think it's pronounced Nanking or Nanjing, something like that, uh, China. And this was a college started by missionaries. Now, what I find interesting is that uh, many belong to a church uh, just like ours, and her church, like ours, was part of a nationwide group of churches we're a part of called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And if you're wondering, what is that? Well, let me tell you. Uh, we're in the middle of a, of a sermon series called Your Story, Our Story. And we're, we're looking at some of the ways that our stories, our individual stories, fit into the broader picture, the broader story we're a part of uh, in this network of churches called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. Through this series, we've been looking at uh, some of the ways or some of the, some of the issues that we care deeply about, you know, issues like inclusion, uh, welcome, justice, and unity also fit into and are part of the broader story that people just like us and churches like ours care about uh, across our country, just like many cared about these issues. So Minnie Vaughan was a person who cared deeply about others, and she committed her life to serving others. 
She served many years in China, working her way up uh, just from the, you know, the bottom ranks and working her way up in, in Ginling College, ultimately becoming president of the college for a time, continuing to serve uh, until the mid-30s, mid-1930s, that is. Now, for the history buffs among us, and if there are any, you might think, ah, oh, the 1930s, China was actually about the time, the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War. And according to some, actually, the, the, about the unofficial start, some people think the official start, of the Second World War. So Minnie was at this college, teaching at this, at this Ginling College, around, again, this time when the, all these hostilities were getting going. And she began kind of seeing what was on the horizon and saw trouble brewing. So she began preparing the college to withstand a potential invasion of the Chinese army, even going so far as to having trenches dug around the campus. So after the first uh, air raid in 1937, the Americans, all Americans, were advised to leave the city for, for obvious reasons, but many felt compelled to stay behind and do all she could to protect her students. And while she had done all she could, all she could have possibly done to prepare for the invasion, nothing could have prepared her for what was to come. So the Japanese army came into the city and just brutally, I mean brutally, terrorized the inhabitants. It's known today as the, the Nanking Massacre or, or the Rape of Nanking. And some 200,000 to 300,000 men, women, and children were just brutally murdered with even thousands, uh, thousands of women and children just raped and assaulted. I mean, just a brutal, brutal uh, event. But as, as the carnage unfolded around her, thousands of women began pouring into her little Ginling College, and the campus was soon just overcrowded with refugees, so much to the point that the many had to stand at the front gate and urge the older women to go back home so that the younger women and the children could, could find a place of refuge in the college. But of course, as you can imagine, many of these women, you know, they, they stood there, they stayed there, and they begged for entrance to be admitted into the campus. So being a compassionate person, many veterans, she let these women in, all of them in. At the height of the atrocity, this small women's college was crowded with over 10,000 women and children. And as the, as the atrocities continued, she soon discovered that she had, she had placed all over the campus American flags and proclamations saying, hey, keep out, this is safe space, this is American space, keep out. But despite those proclamations and despite the American flags posted all over, that still didn't stop uh, Japanese soldiers from coming in and trying to wreak havoc. So she realized that only the presence of a, of a foreigner would deter these people. So day and night, she'd be running from one place to another. Whenever a, a Japanese soldier came in trying to wreak and cause trouble, she would run to that point where the, the, the Japanese soldier had increased and stand in front of the soldier and say, hey, you're not welcome here. You can't be here. And of course, as you can imagine, the soldier's eventually grew fatigued of it, and, and uh, you know, the story goes that at one point they, they, they stood in front of her and slapped her face, and they held their, their rifles with their bloody bayonets, 
shoved him in her face and said, hey, you need to get out of here. You need to leave. And she stood in the face of these soldiers with a bloody bayonet pointed right at her face, perhaps with blood still dripping down. The bayonet said, no, I cannot leave. This is my home. I cannot leave. So heroic were her actions that she has been heralded in a biography describing her life as the American goddess of Nanjing. She was awarded the, the, uh, the emblem of the blue jade by the Chinese government, and she's actually memorialized, uh, if you can see this picture, in the, the Nanjing Massacre Memorial Hall with this incredible statue. And if you can't make up the picture behind her, but it's kind of her as you can kind of imagine, standing, protecting all these women and children behind her from certain death and torture. She was, by all accounts, an amazing, incredible, heroic woman. But what's interesting, at least to me, is that she was, in the end, just a human being like all of us. But she did incredible, I mean, incredible things. And I, I wanted to highlight Minnie's story because I think it powerfully demonstrates what is a, a foundational principle within our tradition. A big, it's a big fancy word we call the priesthood of the believer. And that's a, that's a big churchy theological word. But it basically means you don't have to be somebody to do something. So Minnie, she was not ordained. She didn't go to seminary. It wasn't even like her dad was a pastor or anything. She was just a normal, everyday woman. But she was empowered and enabled within her church to take bold steps of faith that would lead her to take heroic actions. I believe that Minnie was putting into practice a principle we see laid out in the Bible. Again, this principle that you don't have to be somebody to do something. So I want to read uh, this morning from 1 Peter chapter 2. And First Peter is a book, it was a, it's actually a letter that was written long ago to early followers of Jesus. And I think in this letter, uh, Peter, the author, makes this same point. So we're going to read uh, from First Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. And I'll read it here from the screen along with you. It says, now you are coming to him as a living stone, even though the stone was rejected by humans, from God's perspective, it is chosen, it is valuable. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, again, these verses use what we might understand as some pretty churchy or uh, churchy language, like temple, priesthood, sacrifices. But I hope we can kind of get the point of what, uh, kind of get the gist of what the author is trying to say here. The author was essentially saying, hey, you are an active part of this thing that we're trying to build. And more than just being a part of it, you have a part to play in this. Even now, God is shaping and molding you into a person that can do great things for God. You know, unless we think this was just written to some, you know, some seminary students, some, some Bible college trainees, 
some ancient church leaders? No. This was written to everyday followers of Jesus and people who were likely facing discrimination in their own time. They were hardly people in positions of privilege. Rather, they were normal, everyday, working people like us. You know, people trying to work a job, people trying to manage their household, people probably trying to take care of their kids. But the author wanted these people to know that they were more than just that. They were vital pieces and vital participants in this thing that God was seeking to build with their help. You, me, each of us, no matter our station, no matter our status, have a part to play in what God is seeking to build here. And more, each part, each participant is as vital as the next. My position as pastor, my position as pastor does not elevate me above others. Rather, it just, it just signifies my acceptance, my participation in the part that God has for me in the building process. You know, in my childhood, I made a commitment to follow the ways of Jesus. In my youth, I made a commitment uh, to become a pastor, to participate in the part God had for me. In my ordination, I declared my commitment to the world. But each one of you, no matter your background, no matter your education, no matter your financial means, are being invited by God as equally important part and participants in God's building process. So if you haven't already, say yes to God's invitation to follow the ways of Jesus. But more, say yes to participate in the part that God has for you. And true, the part that the part that God invites you to may not be as glamorous as others. Our work may not be memorialized as it was for many Vatran. But in God's eyes, we're each an important piece of the puzzle. I mean, this whole thing can't come together without each one of us. We each need each other to do our part. So we've got to do something. Where can you share God's love with others? How can you spread good news? How together can we spread the love of Jesus? Big or small, we need it all. Because without you, we all, we all miss out. So the Apostle Paul, a contemporary of Peter, wrote himself a letter to an ancient church in the city of Corinth, and he said it this way. So I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll be kind of skipping around here in the chapter. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 12. And I sometimes like reading it just from the text here, so I'm going to do it since it's a longer section. So he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For the one spirit, for in the one spirit, we are all baptized in one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Skipping down to verse 22, it says, indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The members of of the body that seem weaker are indeed indispensable. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. It's really, it's really quite simple. We can't be who we together were, are meant to be if we don't all do our part, if we don't all value each other's contributions, if we don't treat each other as equal, uh, equal in importance and significance. We can't be the church that God wants us to be. And as easy as it is to look at historic, amazing figures like Minnie Vautrin as heroic, you know, just heroic solo figures, I think in many ways her actions, as incredible and uh, sacrificial as they were, really speak to how other followers of Jesus supported her and enabled her to do those things. I mean, in her youth, it was her pastor who encouraged her to be a missionary. It was fellow missionaries who started Gangling College and supported her in her work. And it was countless Christians and churches back in America who financially supported her sacrificially. Every part, every part matters. Every part is important. Every part is needed. Or else, I mean, or else the whole thing just falls apart. That's just, that's what the Apostle Paul said. He made the analogy of comparing the church to the physical human body. Again, in chapter 12, he writes, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? If all were a single member, where would the body be? I mean, heck, we all know... (laughs) We all know how problematic it can be to our physical health when one part of our body stops working the way it's supposed to, right? I mean, a few years ago, I had my appendix uh, cause me problems. And even though modern science really doesn't understand what's the point of the appendix, when my appendix stopped working, it was a problem, let me tell you. Our church, Paul compares to a body. And our church can't function the way it's supposed to without every person playing the part that God has for each one of us. Without you, without us, each one of us doing our part, we'll just be limping along, doing our best, but still missing out on all that God has for us together to be. So say yes, say yes to the part that God has for you to play in this building process. Because we need you. You're a vital part of what God is seeking to do in and through Mission Gathering Christian Church. Let's pray. Hey, thanks for tuning in with us this week. You can check back for new messages each Tuesday. If you're in the Denver area, come see us this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times as well as the mission and vision of M.G. Thornton at mgthornton.org. That's M-G-T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. See you next week.